offensive cyber operations, Singapore elections, and disaster resilience in the Pacific. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss the Singapore election results and disaster resilience frameworks in the Pacific. But first, ASPE's John Coyne and Tom Uren speak about the legal dilemmas of conducting offensive cyber operations. Okay, good morning, John. Morning, Tom. Now, each time I run into you, it seems to me like it's one of the pleasures of ASPE to talk to someone and have an interesting discussion. And we were on a panel not long ago where we were talking about after COVID. And I'd written a chapter with Jocelyn where we talked about using our offensive cyber capability. So the government had just said, we're using it against cyber criminals. And I had kind of riffed off that and said that we should also use it against the actual real threats to Australia. And at the time you said, you know, your your attitude to offensive cyber had changed over time. So can you just tell me, what do you think about what the government is doing against criminals? And then what do you think about extending that to state-sponsored actors? Look, Tom, I think for a start, I think it's really important. From my perspective, I would normally describe myself as being hawkish about national security. But on this issue, my mind has changed over time. So... Um, Previously, when I worked in government, and I saw this quite often where, um, you know, especially with criminals, if you're going to arrest someone, if you're going to get someone uh, extradited off sh- from offshore, you're really looking, in terms of evidence, you know, you're really you're looking at having to prove something beyond reasonable doubt. That's a big challenge. So, of course, quite often, um, you, you although you might know someone is doing something wrong, especially in some jurisdictions, and to put it quite, you know, a, a lot of times it's yep. about online activity, so um, child exploitation, etc. So, and you just can't get them back. Yep. And, and that- so it's a really attractive to use offensive yeah, yeah. cyber operations. Um, and, you know, I had this amongst colleagues back in the day, used to say it as well, you know, it would be so much, we could save lives. Um, yep. We can prevent children from being harmed by using offensive cyber operations. But over time, and as I fast forward, especially more time here at ASPE starting to think about it, um, the real issue is what impact that new approach really yep. has on our justice system. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like uh, there's a tension between operational and tactical and what I'd call strategic there. And the tension is we can do some good now, but it's got some bad consequences. Yeah, and look, that's my big concern, Tom. You know, look, we sit there and think about it. So um, what impact it has on, um, on on our court system, our justice system. So what we're saying here now is that we can't possibly prosecute someone beyond reasonable doubt, but we're happy under some other burden of proof to take action against someone. Now, the public argument on this has been really stifled by uh, at the moment and over the last sort of 12 to 18 months because we default back to the position. Um, and some of my previous colleagues in government have said this, you know, this is, like, this is about saving children. Um, and I want to save children. I, I work in that sort of area. You know, we really want to save children. But at the same thing, we've got to ask ourselves, where does that stop in terms of yep. using that offensive that defensive capability. And, you know, we've had that discussion in terms of nation yeah. states. And I think that's where it's a really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my comment there would be that I, I remember quite clearly the day that the government made the announcement that we would be using offensive cyber against cyber criminals. And I thought it was a terrible announcement. 
And to me, the real problem was that it, in a way, gives other countries a license to attack people in Australia who they consider to be criminals. And I'm 100% confident that other countries have different standards from us. And so that, that, that sort of, to me, opened the door to perhaps dissidents. And the, the government has made some announcements, and we've actually done a report on how we would militarily use offensive cyber. But I'm not aware that there's any sort of definition around how we would put checks and balances around cyber criminals. Not that I'm aware of, and I think the other issue is is that you know once you that normalising behaviour at the international level is key to this. So, um, having spent time living in Vietnam uh, and a number of other countries, I can tell you, you know, a lot of countries are willing to, for instance, sign up to agreements and have been since September 11 to talk about and say, well, you know, we're happy to to do deals and work with you on terrorism. Um, but the difference is, is in many countries, um, the definition of terrorism is quite different to what mm. we're talking about here in Australia. And so, you know, by normalising behaviour, we're almost opening a Pandora's box on this and that I'm concerned about. But, you know, taking it back again to its basics, which is um, if a person comes into a shop and steals something or damages property, um, a police officer responds to that, the complaint, they do the investigation, it goes to court. Uh, we have a separation of powers doctrine. Um, we have an independent judiciary. We have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. Yep. All that fantastic stuff that makes us such a great country. Now we're saying, well, you know what, if we can't do that, um, we'll use this <laughs> other thing instead. And I think that's my troubling factor. Yeah, and so I, I agree with that, except for the fact that I think the the consequences to the receiving end of offensive cyber versus ending up in jail are just vastly different. So when I think of it, I think of it as disruption rather than destruction. So the standards of evidence are different. If you are in a position to be sure that someone is doing some bad stuff, you, it, it's actually from a cyber espionage point of view, relatively easy to do some sort of disruption that is not this nowhere near the same level of as them ending up in jail. It might be like just locking them out of their computer, uh, making but this the computer is, behave funny. But, Tom, you know, this is part of that argument where we sort of sit there and we think about it and go, well, um, the judiciary system, where we reduce it down far too simply, the judiciary system is not just about um, is not just about sending people to jail. You know, there's a whole range of other punishments. And the judiciary system, its strength isn't in sending people to jail. Its strength is in it, its openness and transparency. And the yeah. other side of it is, you know, look, to, to what standard? So, you know, we know what the burden of proof is. So, for instance, if you assault me, the police have to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. Now, if you slander me and I take it a civil, a civil approach to it, um, you know, it's on the balance of probabilities. Now, they're, so they're... There's the evidence there. Yep. It's all well laid out. The rules of the road are there. But when we when we're doing this sort of disruption, and I'm I'm, I'm not necessarily I don't agree with the concept of disruption. In fact, I'm a big supporter of disrupting criminal networks yep. using a variety and terrorists through using a variety of means. I'm just not sure um, where the line is um, for yep. these sorts of these sorts of issues of offensive cyber operations, and I don't think the line is very clear. Um, and it could be undermining our justice system in Australia. Yeah, so I think a friend of mine, uh, we were talking about the ethics of signals intelligence and um, targeting it against foreigners. And his comment at the time was, well, that's all okay because they're not taxpayers. And that's 
both. To me, I thought that was quite funny. But it, it also gets to the truth of it, is that people overseas aren't part of the Australian community. They literally don't get a say in what, well, they shouldn't necessarily have a say in how Australia's run. And to me, that, that allows us to have a different set of standards in a way. So if there are criminals that are causing harm to Australians and we've got no chance of ever prosecuting them, I think that it's reasonable enough that as a state, we take some sort of action. Now, I think it was a terrible idea to say that we were taking action, <laughs> but that there was, um, there, there is a way with checks and balances and some form of approval that we, that I can get to a place that we'd be happy with. But we should probably talk quickly about whether that makes sense for other states as well. So my reaction when the defence minister said we were doing this in COVID-19 times is, you know, that's great. COVID-19 is a terrible time, but cyber criminals are not going to, they're not an existential threat to Australia. They can cause a lot of harm. Why are we focusing effort on disrupting cyber criminals if we're not doing something similar to, to the real threats? Um, look, it's interesting how we're happy to do something in the cyber world that we wouldn't do in the real world in the foreign jurisdiction. So, mm, you know, yep. for instance, you wouldn't be happy if I broke into someone's house uh, and uploaded using a USB key uh, a piece of um, software uh, onto someone's computer. You know, we'd say that was, if we did it in a foreign country, we'd say that's a crime, but mm. we are happy to do it online. So I think that's, there's some issues there. But, you know, I, I think there's there's always policy is always dominated by politics, and I think the discussion in terms of in terms of protecting Australians, you know, there's there's a lot of concerns about a rapid change in the economy at the moment. So, uh, government's decision to do a lot more work in the cyberspace when a population is locked down, buying more, doing more online, probably makes sense. Mm. Um, it probably makes sense more from a policy perspective because it's going to build build greater confidence to at least keep the economy going in that that cyberspace and through that transition to whatever life after COVID-19 looks like. Um, and indeed, what life during, you know, wave two or three of COVID-19 looks like. Um, as for the other crimes, and I think this is this is the danger we start, especially when you talk about criminal activity, um, this is, I guess, the danger we start getting into this. So what other crimes are we happy to do? You know, like, yeah. you know, give me a list and we'll sort of work through it and yeah. under and what circumstances. And, you know, following my argument, they're all foreigners, so it's all okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that's the other thing too, you know, that's, but again, it's all okay and then it becomes all okay for foreigners to do that to us. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, this is always one of these things that we like to... Um, like to, to wear our white hat and shiny star saying, you know, we're the good guys and we're, we don't do the bad things, you know, and the others shouldn't do the bad things. Um, yet we're also, when it suits us, doing exactly that. Yeah. Thanks very much, John. No worries. Thank you, much. Next, Senior Analyst Huang Le Tu speaks to Jia Ian Chong, visiting scholar at the Harvard Yangqing Institute, about the recent elections in Singapore and why the results were a surprise for some. On the 10th of July, Singaporeans went to cast a vote in social distance measures with allocated time ban to vote crowds. The general election 2020 was a very unusual one, not only because of pandemic circumstances, but also many other aspects. The elections resulted in the highest number of the parliamentarian seats occupied by uh, the opposition since the independence. In this particular case, the Workers' Party got 10 seats. 
It also resulted in one of the three lowest popular vote rates for the ruling party, the People's Action Party, only at 61.2%. For many, this was unexpected as the unusual circumstances um, thought to be benefiting incumbents. To unpack this historic election, I'm joined by Professor Ian Jia Chong, a political scientist from the National University of Singapore, currently at the Harvard University on sabbatical. Welcome, Ian. Ian, uh, the previous election in uh, 2015, I remember, had a very strong political movement um, and very vivid uh, rallies. Uh, I went to many rallies of all parties, and the general expectation back then was that the position would have done much better, but the results were rather underwhelming. This time around, we didn't have physical rallies because of the COVID situation, so many feared the voters' apathy given the constraints. Yet the results were very surprising. How do you explain the voters' behavior? So I think uh, 2015 is also very much an anomaly. Uh, it came in the wake of uh, Lee Kuan Yew's death and also the uh, 50th anniversary of Singapore's founding. So there was a lot of hype on um, both regular media and social media and also generally all around. And many people felt, um, I suppose, for lack of a better term, grateful uh, to the People's Action Party. Now, this wasn't the case uh, with this more recent election. And I think the pandemic weighed quite heavily on people's minds. So people felt that there needed to be uh, some sort of resolution, some sort of preparation for the economic fallout that was to come. Now, uh, the PAP had the People's Action Party had campaign on delivering um, the past, basically, you know, they said, well, you know, trust us, we've done this before. Uh, but people, I think, felt that this is a new situation. Uh, they felt ill at ease. And what happened was uh, the Workers' Party, into a uh, lesser degree, the Singapore Democratic Party and uh, the Progress Singapore Party came up with you know, policies that said, look, uh, what we need to push for is uh, better social safety nets to make sure people don't uh, fall through the cracks. And we need to make sure that um, no one is given a blank check, right? Um, and so I think voters were persuaded by that argument. Voters, were, I think, were also, they had their moods sort of dampened a little bit and um, were made more sober by the pandemic. In G 2015, one of the issues was that the uh, big rallies, I think, frightened some people. Uh, they thought that the PAP was going to lose office. Uh, and then, in addition, in G 2015, there were also cases of disinformation being spread online. There was a talk of uh, bookies odds, um, that the PAP would lose, that there were um, there were bookies on saying that the, the the Workers Party would win, and once they did so, they would push through um, same sex marriage, and this put a lot of conservative Singapore voters ill at ease, and as a result, I think it created this big swing at the very last moment uh, towards the PAP. Now these were not present uh, in this current round of elections, and I think social media and online game for the Workers Party in particular, but also. Uh, the Progress Singapore Party was very well done. Uh, they, they handled sort of crisis situations pretty well. Uh, and so there was less of that sort of, um, the, there were sort of, I suppose, um, what could be manipulation effects, but they were much more dampened. And also Facebook had removed some of these sites that had been known to be particularly egregious in the way that they would, um, uh, you know, create, uh, use bots to create information that wasn't completely true or to attack uh, people who were uh, not supportive of the PAP. 
But this election ha- is so important because of the overwhelming feeling of uncertainty of the, because of the pandemic and what lies ahead. The pandemic and its fallout, the new generation of leadership, all those uncertainties. And there was uh, an expectation, at least among um, the political scientists, to expect that people would tend to vote more conservatively in the time of crisis. For example, in 2001, when just after the 1911 uh, attack in, in the US, uh, there was an election in Singapore and the PAP received significantly high spike of confidence uh, compared to previous elections, for example, right? The 2020 G wasn't an easy win. The PAP still has a strong mandate uh, with 83 seats out of 93, right? It was a hard-fought election. So, um, Ian, would you agree that the confidence in the ruling party in general is still there, but Singaporeans want more checks and balances in place, particularly in these very testing times? Right. So I think the narrative that the PAP you know, should not be given a blank check, uh, that certainly took hold. But of course, behind that kind of claim is the belief that the PAP would still be the party of government. However, I would also say that uh, there are issues of uh, malapportionment, sorry, let me say that. There are issues of malapportionment uh, with uh, elections in Singapore uh, because the vote share for the PAP uh, came up to came up to about 61%, uh, but the number of seats that were um, that they won was, I think, was in the high 80s. So there's about a 20% difference between vote share and the number of seats uh, that um, a, a party would get. Uh, so in this sense, um, I think on the one hand, it probably put voters more at ease in terms of thinking that they could still vote for parties other than the PAP and you know, not have very much difference. Now, at the same time, um, I think uh, that that vote share, which is about nine um, percent, eight or nine, eight to nine percent less than the vote share in in twenty fifteen, uh, suggests that there is a, a decline in confidence uh, in the PAP, in particular uh, with the fourth generation leadership that the current uh, PAP uh, leaders, the current uh, Central Executive Committee, is trying to push out. Now, there's a view that they seem to be less experienced, they seem to be less savvy, they, they come out of either the military or the public service and don't really have sufficient experience uh, dealing with you know, the world outside. Now, uh, the point about uh, the, fl- the flight to safety is interesting because certainly it uh, appeared that PAP believed in this as well. So there was... Um, there were three leaked audio clips of uh, Chan Chun Singh, uh, who is um, I, who's been identified as one of the uh, top uh, fourth generation leaders and um, someone who's going to be very important in the uh, upcoming leadership. Now, in 2019, uh, from these leaked tapes, um, it seemed that his view was that crises are good for the PAP. So um, one of the things that he said was, well, look, uh, 9-11, uh, was was good for the PAP. Um, the uh, financial crisis was good for the PAP. This is, of course, very chilling because when you think about 9-11, um, it's, you know, thousands of people dying and then uh, two wars that uh, disrupted lives, you know, destroyed economies, countries and societies. So, that, but that's their view, right? So in, in this regard, I think the crisis that the pandemic created, that sort of flight to safety did not uh, materialize 
in part possibly because of the lack of confidence in the fourth generation leadership, in part because there was a view that um, the sort of tried and tested formula for the PAP might not be good enough. I'm sorry, the trend tested formula from the PAP might not be good enough uh, for Singapore's future, a future that uh, you know is maybe very much unlike what we've seen before, a future that you know Singapore has not really had to grapple with since um, really independence. That's right, and um, it is that sense of uncertainty in the future that is very palpable in Singapore at the moment. Uh, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long wrote last month, even before the election, the terrific piece in the Foreign Affairs magazine where he explained the position of a smaller nation in the wake of uh, the intensifying, intensifying great power competition. He explained the concerns that the Asian century and its prosperity is not to be taken for granted. And in fact, we must navigate in much less conducive international environment including you know, limitations to, on trade, connectivity, international integrations, all things that Singaporean development had relied on. So how do you think Singapore's foreign policy, uh, international trade policies, and generally uh, its global standing will perform in the next couple of years ahead? So I think Singapore's foreign policy uh, under the, the PAP, the next term of the PAP uh, administration, will look very similar to before. And if the foreign affairs piece is any indication, uh, you know, there is a tendency to be cautious and uh, perhaps very conservative uh, in outlook. But I mean, I also see the foreign affairs piece as a wish list in the sense that Lee Chen Long laid out what he hopes will allow Singapore to prosper, what he hopes the global environment will look like. But unfortunately, you know, Singapore being a smaller country, uh, we, we can't really shape the global environment on our own. So the international cooperation that he's hoping, the mutual accommodation between the US and China that he is seeking, those may not materialize. And what I see as absent from the foreign affairs piece is what Singapore might do uh, in the event that these sorts of events um, you know, not turn out as well as Singapore would hope. And I think that's been the big question uh, for much of Singapore's domestic policy, but also its foreign policy. So it's you know traditionally, uh, well, at least for the past decade or so, it's said that it does not wish to choose. Um, it wishes to work with both the U.S. and China. Now, that is predicated on an assumption that the U.S. and China have a big overlap in interest that Singapore can then uh, maneuver within, right? So there's a lot of space for Singapore to move. But as tensions between the U.S. and China increase, as they carry their uh, disagreements into international organizations uh, and the region more broadly, that space for, for, uh, for maneuver for Singapore may actually be declining. So what Singapore might do under these circumstances is less clear. And I don't think uh, the PAP administration has laid out a plan. They, I mean, they said, well, if they want to choose, it has to be beneficial to Singapore. I mean, they're largely general, um, maybe even motherhood statements that don't point to a uh, clear direction. And that is obviously a source of concern uh, for those of us uh, who live in Singapore uh, and you know, do hope that we are able to navigate carefully but um, successfully this rockier and you know, potentially more dangerous environment that we're facing. It's fascinating discussion and there's so much to cover. Unfortunately, it's all the time we've got. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Finally, Head of ASPE's Risk and Resilience Program, Paul Barnes, speaks to environmental experts 
Mavis Dupony and Monty Dupony about disaster resilience in the Pacific and the implementation of the Sende framework in Nauru. Well, thank you, Mavis and Monty Dupony, for coming to speak with me today on this podcast. One of the the interesting things that Australia faces is that it's, uh, it has a neighbour to the east. Basically, it's a region. Pacific Islands are basically extremely vulnerable to climate variation and weather effects related to climate change, a range of other phenomena, sea level rise, resource depletion, changing ecosystems. And one of the critical elements that uh, my work recently has looked into is the way in which the Sendai Disaster Risk Reduction Framework is being implemented in the Pacific region. As a result of that uh, recently published report on Pacific Disaster Risk Reduction, I really appreciate both of you working on the chapter on Nauru. Uh, as specialists within that space, it was really great to have your views. I'd like to start with, with, with three generic questions uh, relating to Sendai and, and national development strategies within Nauru. Many of the Pacific Island communities are imp- combining implementation of the Sendai framework with their local national development strategies. Uh, and this seems to be a case also with Nauru. Could I seek your views on some of the key activities being undertaken along this type of combination of global framework with local uh, development uh, strategies? Oh, hi, Paul. Okay, well, when you're talking about um, national strategies for Nauru, you're looking at the uh, our strategy development, the NSDS. So basically, the NSDS is the one, uh, as, as mentioned in the chapter, that was developed from 2005 and it's been reviewed several times or three times to date. And um, that broad strategy, you know, has has various uh, feed into the higher level arrangements like through the SDGs, the Samoa Pathway, Paris Agreement. And at the national level, then you've got policy papers like the RON ADAPT and, and so forth. And further down to that, uh, you have through the NSDS strategic, let's say, matrix for each sector to do over a period of time. And there are key performance indicators put in there. And how these all relate to the back to the Sendai framework is a bit probably not directly, but rather indirectly through the SDGs and how that's been adopted through the NSDS over the last review. So, you know, there's, there's much to do. It's all good and nice when you have all these kind of neat looking plans. And, but then when it comes down to the implementation, it's a lot more difficult, especially with um, financial constraints, human resource constraints in terms of uh, skills and uh, and so forth. So some of the complexities, obviously, is that um, all of the Pacific Island communities have to uh, implement systems and, and practices, but that doesn't stop the, uh, the weather from playing up and uh, crises coming in. So uh, one of the things I've said recently is that crises don't wait in line. They just appear when they want to. So I think, uh, obviously, there are a range of vulnerabilities in the Pacific uh, space, but are there specific vulnerabilities in Nauru that exacerbate the threat of climate and weather crises? Well, if you're talking along the lines of uh, climate change and disaster, I mean, there is actually quite a few. I mean, when you're talking socioeconomic, there's a lot of issues that come along uh, those lines of uh, socioeconomic issues, especially with climate change disaster. But one of the things that um, I would uh, presume as a priority for Nauru would be our water sector. Because in Nauru, we 
we have long drought periods and that will only become worse through climate change. And we don't have the infrastructure for to ensure that we have water, like we have sustainable sustainable water storage throughout those um, periods of time. So one of, one, of, one of the elements in your chapter uh, within the Pacific Review specifically looked at uh, water scarcity. In terms of uh, food production on Nauru, the, the islands of Nauru, uh, is there any issues to do with brackish water in the ground, uh, brackish uh, infiltration into the groundwater impacting agricultural problems, etc., in addition to rain problems in terms of rainfall? Well, Nauru doesn't have much of an agricultural sector. It, it tends to be like a plants that are already kind of used to the environment. Mm. Yep. So like, um, for example, pawpaw and... Uh, uh, fruit, fruit trees. Uh, and uh, fruit, fruit, trees. fruit. Mm. But in terms of widespread monoculture or agriculture that supplies the local market demand, it's, it's very, very limited. So there is difficulties, as far as I know, there are difficulties in growing certain types of plants mainly due to the uh, lack of water or mm. high salinity in water mm. um, through the brackish system. And um, and then there's also the heat mm. as well as, you know, other, yeah, mm. as well as other impacts like fruit fly coming in and mm. contaminating some of the existing plants mm. that are already there. That's, yes. that's the area that's weak in my opinion, but, the, the main source is obviously the sea, I think, and from hunting of uh, naughty birds. The food, mm. in yeah, terms, in of, terms food. of yeah. So mm. because in Nauru, with the with the water system, I mean, one of the main practices or the main practice that we do is we try and save as much of the potable water for um, for drinking uh, potable mm. water. Um, yeah. But other types of uh, water sources, underground water, which is slightly contaminated and in some areas, uh, quite saline. Uh, we use those for non-portable uses and um, what's what's another way of... Uh, rainwater harvesting is another way for us to contain water and uh, delivery from uh, delivery trucks like in for water that's gone through the reverse, reverse osmosis system. Mm. So there's th- yeah, three ways of obtaining water depending on how you're going to use it. Mm. And is Nauru winning? in terms of its water supply issues? I wish I could say we are. <laughs> uh, no, we, our main storage, let's say, if, if everything stopped working tomorrow, we would only have enough portable water. At, at one stage, it was just three days, but I do believe work has been done um, recently to have our water storage up to about a week or a week and a half. This for... Mm-hmm. Portable again. I would mm. just go. That's just mm. straight up portable use um, for the whole island. Mm. So no, we don't really have much in terms of storage and drought for us can mm. can generate from months. It's been recorded up to years. So mm. it's yeah, that's quite hard. <laughs> it's an interesting conundrum for many people who may be aware of cyclonic activity in the Pacific to, to appreciate that, that there are also droughts and absence of, of consistent rainfall across the oceanic world as well. Uh, Australia has been in a drought for the last you know, 200, 300 years, but certainly uh, we're not certainly at this level of vulnerability that uh, I think Nauru sits. 
One one further question in terms of the Bowie Declaration and other statements that have come uh, before then and subsequent, there's been a, a standard discussion about the notion of sustainability and security in meshing as, as co- common convergent issues. In terms of current uh, prioritization in Nauru, sustainability seems, in my understanding, and certainly reading of your chapter, to be a, a critical issue. And certainly the work you're doing currently at the university relating to general sustainability issues and maritime marine stability. Uh, the issues of sustainability, how, how is Nauru addressing them? And what, what are the key themes of sustainability uh, practice and, and policy development currently uh, being considered? Well, it depend, depends on the sector, I suppose. But um, in terms of fisheries, for example, in tuna, in the tuna fisheries, it's a shared resource, one of which... Uh, Pacific can benefit economically, but we all we all share that that common resource. So, as a source of uh, economic security, it, it's in our interest to maximize or optimize the use of that resource for economic benefits and possibly more if we can develop that sector. Because, mind you, one of the limitations for Nauru, for example, has always been the infrastructure, like lack of port infrastructure and so forth and even human resources to work in the sector itself so that in itself is a limitation but one that can be developed providing the appropriate investment is put and infrastructure are put in place i'm not quite sure where else to look at in terms of the limited uh, natural resources that we have uh, especially a renewable one provided we manage manage it well but um, other areas include substituting imports of certain goods that we can or have a, an advantage in producing locally for our own sense of food security. Mm. And I think that's an that's one of the key issues that we should be really taking into consideration. In terms of the water, I think we've gotten used to the fact that water costs and being coming from historically coming from a, almost like a welfare state system where Water, food, kind of thing were all very cheap, or certain services were at the cost of the state. While while I look at it and go, oh, that's it could have probably been done better, especially on the water issue, because before we were just shipping it in rather than looking at uh, an approach where we would be self-sustainable on water supply, mm-hmm. and it's it, and it's basically the same thing, and that was basically riding high on the on the backbone of the uh, phosphate industry, which is now almost depleted. Mm. So the dependence on one commodity for mm. export versus an import of a variety of other commodities really dampened the approach on self-sustainability. It, it's a bit of a wake-up call for all of us in Nauru, and, and it's something that we should be looking at in the big, I guess you could say, picture of things or scheme of things, because we cannot just keep on importing more than we export. And so one of the easiest ways of trying to, I guess, mitigate that would be to increase our own self-sustainability on food, especially food and water, mm. and and limit the import. So that's another way of looking at it. Well, that's my view. <laughs> yeah. I think what, many, there are obviously many challenges across the Pacific and the oceanic spaces, but as as an onlooker from a, a large co- island continent to the west, I think um, one of the critical issues is keeping uh, a view, a set of lenses to look at the issues in the Pacific that are not, it's not just climate 
change. It's environmental security and, and the well-being of the people that live there. And I think uh, the sorts of lenses that your your work and the, the details that you've put into the chapter in the in the report certainly exemplify the the, the broader notions of water scarcity, diversity in maritime protein and fisheries, etc. Critical issues that I think uh, certainly will be of great interest to our listeners. So, Mavis and Monty Deporni, thank you for your time today. It's been a great pleasure, thank and you. I hope we can talk to you again on a podcast into the future. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Don't forget to join us for the 2020 ASPE conference, which kicks off next week. Stan Grant, John Howard and Kim Beasley discussing Australia's future. To see the full agenda and to register, head to the ASPE website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.